0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Spencer Monti. Spencer is a senior counsel in Foley's Chicago office with a practice focused on intellectual property-related matters. In this discussion, Spencer reflects on growing up in Middleton, Wisconsin, attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison for college and law school. Although, as Spencer shares, he did not go straight through between college and law school. He actually spent five years working in San Diego as a civil engineer. So Spencer reflects on what it was that caused him to decide to leave engineering to become a lawyer and why it was that he returned to the Midwest. I also get Spencer to talk a bit about his practice, which I find to be unique in that Spencer does both IP prosecution and IP litigation. Additionally, I was thrilled to get Spencer on the show because Spencer is the chair of Foley's Associates Committee. So I have him discuss what the Associates Committee does, why it's important, and what it is about it at Foley that makes it particularly unique. And of course, because this is the path in the practice, this episode is littered with practice advice advice. Including advice on the importance of, as a law student, taking classes that really challenge the way you think. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Spencer. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. We're going to jump right in and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction.
1: Yeah, sure. My name is Spencer Monta. I'm on a senior counsel at Foley and Lardner and in its intellectual property litigation practice group. I was a summer at the firm in 2012 and uh, joined, obviously, as an associate. The following year, in 2013, you know, my practice, I'd say, generally is pretty varied within sort of the intellectual property area, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, copyrights, you name it, and also do, you know, and that would be in district court litigations, I also do some work at the ITC, and then also some counseling work, you know, just strategic counseling for clients, portfolio management, things like that. So, you know, really, I think, emphasize having, you know, some expertise in a lot of different areas and bringing that to bear, you know, basically as clients' IP issues arise, you know, wherever they arise. So
0: we're going to talk about all that. We're going to unpack that a bit, but first we need to get to how it is, why it is that you can describe yourself as this. So let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm from Wisconsin and specifically Middleton, Wisconsin, which is a a suburb. I guess it was small. It's grown quite a bit just west of Madison and great town to grow up in i would describe it as sort of a you know classic midwestern town and a good good place to be a kid
0: i want to hear more about that if i found you say middle school what were you doing what were your hobbies what were you into (laughs) i
1: was probably in detention (laughs) sorry
0: i like um... how you laughed right before you said that go on (laughs) elaborate please
1: yeah i don't know i had a probably a kind of a roundabout path to becoming kind of a productive human i I spent a lot of time getting in trouble when i was young and it kind of started in elementary school probably peaked in middle school and then sort of plateaued throughout high school but
0: what are we talking here, Cla- class clown like why, why why are we in detention <laughs>
1: yeah it was good natured. so i always clarify that i was not mean at least i hope i wasn't i wasn't a bully i would say i, I had a hard time paying attention and was generally bored in class come to learn later it might have been because i had actually had uh, bad eyesight and you know i don't think i could read the, the board so we discovered that probably too late but anyway class clown just not paying attention making jokes but all good natured. So while I was in trouble a lot, I think if you were to talk to teachers and my detention supervisors, they probably were not, uh, you know, all that.
0: <laughs> well, were there any sports or any hobbies or favorite TV shows that you're like, I, anything else, or were you just primarily in detention?
1: No, no. And I'm probably <laughs> overstating it. Yeah, I enjoyed playing soccer, was a decent soccer player for a while. I was pretty small growing up, short, undersized. So, as all my friends and it kind of got bigger, I stayed the same, and so I sort of lagged behind. But for a good while, I was a pretty good soccer player and enjoyed it. I played tennis and swam and did some other things, but you know, never good enough to you know play beyond high school.
0: I actually think that's ideal, believe it or not. I have two kids, and I'm just like, I hope they're not too good at any sport, all the special lessons, and that would <laughs> just really cut into my life. But anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I'm right on the precipice of that myself with my daughter, so.
0: There you go. Well, so tell me about high school and that process of going to college. Do you remember if you had an idea of what you wanted to do in college or how you decided on where you were going? And then tell me where, just tell me what that was like for you.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't have a very structured process of choosing college. You know, I I obviously knew I wanted to go. I wasn't the first in my family to go to college. I, you know, was fortunate enough to kind of come from a a line of college graduates. I, 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 I knew I wanted to go to a bigger school, and I pretty much looked exclusively to the Midwest. So I ended up going to Purdue my freshman year and, and, and joining the freshman engineering program. I don't know why I did engineering. I think it was honestly for lack of another interest, and my grandfather was an engineer, and I looked up to him a lot. I chose Purdue. Incidentally, this is actually embarrassing. I shouldn't, I shouldn't go out here and say this stuff. I chose it because it had a brand new dining hall in the dorm that they showed. And I was just really impressed. And I knew obviously it had a good engineering program. So that's where I went. I actually transferred to the University of Wisconsin after my freshman year and finished as an, my engineering undergraduate degree there. So well,
0: um, the dining hall wasn't enough to keep you at Purdue though. It was nice, yeah, but no, not enough to keep you. <laughs>
1: Incidentally, there's a lot more to college than you know where you eat. Um, <laughs> I learned that pretty quick. I have well, I, I have fond memories of Purdue, I, and I, I'm confident I would have enjoyed it if I stayed.
0: But I really like that you shared that though, because I know for me when I look back on how I chose college, it was really random. I mean, for me, it was so I went to American University in DC, and ultimately it was because they sent me a fee waiver. And also having grown up in Wisconsin, it was, you know, most of my high school, it felt like went to a University of Wisconsin school, many of them Madison. I was set on Emory. But at the end of the day, after having gotten in, looking at like different financial aid packages, the school that I randomly applied to because of a fee waiver. (laughs) is where I went without ever visiting. I didn't know what their dining hall looked like.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, they spend so much time trying to market and cater to us and, uh, and who knows how we are ultimately going to choose.
0: <laughs> well, what's really fun is, so we're 50 something episodes into this podcast and we are getting law students and even lawyers from other firms listening. And I think what one of the things people like about the show is you're just getting to hear that big firm lawyers can be people and that, no, you didn't set out knowing that I'm going to go to law school and this is my path. You know, we've we're, we're just like everyone else. We made these decisions based on, you know, what an 18 or 20 year old made at the time. So I appreciate you sharing that. Tell me a little bit more about that. Perhaps that experience at Wisconsin. And you said you're not quite sure why you focused on civil engineering, but it seemed like it was enough to at least keep your interest is my guess
1: yeah absolutely so actually i think i can credit purdue with this i took a they had like a survey my recollection was like a survey where they kind of introduced you to different engineering departments and they had a a degree in construction engineering and management i was interested in that at the time It, it it was an engineering degree but not one of your sort of like traditional ones that you would find and so wisconsin didn't have that program they what they did was a civil engineering degree with an emphasis in construction which is what i ended up doing so my interest in civil engineering was really an interest in construction I knew I wanted to actually have kind of one of the core engineering degrees. So like mechanicals, you know, whatever. So that's what I did. And Wisconsin, you know, kind of was a good fit because it was where I was from my dad, you know, was, Glad because it was in-state tuition, and I was fortunate enough that he was helping me pay. So I mean, he saved a ton of money, and I still think is grateful.
0: <laughs> this is one of my regrets, though. I look back and I'm like, why didn't I go? Because the tuition, at least at that time, and I'm just I think of you know a few years ahead of you in school, was very reasonable for in-state at and Madison. Wisconsin
1: still is. I mean, Wisconsin. I think I don't know this for sure, but my understanding is that this was true when I went to law school. It was still compared to a lot of other Big Ten law schools, a great you know bargain. I thought.
0: That's wonderful. So what what did you think you were going to do once you graduated from college with a degree in civil engineering with the emphasis on construction? What what was the plan?
1: Yeah, the plan was to join a construction company, general contractor, and just be, you know, ultimately probably get into project management. I think my understanding at the time was you were what's called a project engineer, which was sort of just, I always described it as kind of a problem solver, low man on the totem pole, just making sure, you know, contractors know what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And that's what I ended up doing. And then after that, typically you're sort of promoted to what's called a project manager. And then you're, you know, that's kind of true in a lot of different industries. You're just managing really budget and schedule, but and it was a lot of fun. And that's, that's what I did. That was the plan. And I did that. I got a job with a company called DPR construction, which is a national contractor, but I worked in their San Diego office, which I can't say enough about that company. It's fantastic. Not your run of the mill con- general contractor by any means, a really progressive kind of, quote unquote, California company. And I learned a lot about not just construction, but uh, business in general. That
0: How long were you with them?
1: I want to say five years, roughly, maybe just under five years. And then I was in California at the time. So I actually interned with them in Redwood City up in the Bay Area and got, came back full time when I was done. I accepted a job in San Diego. So probably five years before, for reasons we'll probably get into, I decided to go to law school. <laughs>
0: that's kind of a big deal though, because I know you mentioned you spent a, you know, a year or so at Purdue, but otherwise you'd spent your life mostly in the Midwest. And then you, you know, you get this job and you, you moved to California. Like I just, I would imagine that at the time that was probably kind of a big deal.
1: Yeah. Although, you know, I feel like kind of it's customary for me. I didn't think all that much about that aspect of it. You know, I knew I wanted, to, I was driven enough to want to get this job and you know, really wanted it. And then California had some sort of, I think, appeal for, you know, just sort of in probably a really naive sense to me and graduated and then packed up my car and drove out there. <laughs> and, then,
0: and San Diego's beautiful, too.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. My wife is from Southern Indiana, and she, around the time her sister had started having kids when she started feeling like she wanted to move back to the Midwest. And that's instantly when I also decided to go to law school. So, but for that, you know, I probably would still be out there.
0: Really? Okay, now, yeah, unpack this a bit. So I caught what you said, but did you say she also decided to go to law school?
1: No, she didn't. No, no, she was not. Oh, that's when you decided. Okay. I decided to go to law school.
0: You're an engineer for five or so years. How does law school even enter the picture? How did this happen?
1: This actually is kind of a cool, I think a really interesting part of the story. I haven't done a whole lot with it, but it's true. Before I graduated from Wisconsin, I went to a conference where a woman with international just, who was a lawyer with international justice mission spoke, and I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're actually, I think, headquartered in D.C., but they do a lot of like international justice work related, to like child slavery, sex trafficking, all types of things. And she was basically a lawyer for them, and she kind of just told her story and talked about the things that she was doing and the difference that, you know, this organization was making in the world. And it just resonated with me. You know, I've always felt like I wanted to have meaning and purpose in my life generally. At that point, I think I was probably a junior in college and just felt a little bit like I was just sort of, you know, in a grind and not really sure why I was pursuing what I was pursuing. But and so it had some appeal. But I ultimately decided, you know, I'm not just gonna stop now. I've spent three, four years, you know, working to become an engineer, I'm gonna become an engineer. And, you know, we can revisit this later. It's sort of like tug I felt, you know, hearing a seed, a
0: seed was planted. A little Exa- bit, yeah, okay.
1: exactly. So fast forward five years and my wife wants to move back to the Midwest. I loved the company. I loved what I was doing and, you know, said, look, if we're going to do this and I'm going to kind of uproot my career, you know, like it's now or never for law school. So decided to go to law school and recalled that, you know, sort of exposure to the international justice mission as my reason to do it. So that's what brought me to law school and Wisconsin in particular, I think, for a variety of reasons, I was still eligible for in-state tuition. But I looked at a couple other places, but that's, you know, it was a good school and very affordable for me.
0: (laughs) Yes, and you saw me nod my head when the in-state tuition came back. I was like, absolutely, that makes a ton of sense. And then so you all moved back to Madison, presumably? She
1: was a nurse, She's a pediatric ICU nurse. She got a job at American Family Children's Hospital in Madison in their PICU. And so we were fortunate enough, you know, that job was in pretty much continual demand. And so she paid our way through my law school and, you know, really made that possible for us. Yeah, Wisconsin made my family still in Wisconsin. I mean, there's a variety of reasons it, it made sense.
0: And what was the experience like after having you know, worked for a number of years to go back to school? How was that adjustment for you?
1: Really hard initially. In fact, I remember, you know, my 1L year being like, what have I done? I had this promising career that I loved. I was making money. I was living in San Diego. I mean, I it was fantastic. I was like, I'm here I am with, you know, I, what I perceived as kids who'd never had a job before, like, you know, going straight to law school and I was being bossed around by professors being asked rhetorical questions. You know, I just felt it felt like a huge mistake at the time. What have
0: I, oh my gosh, what have I done? And now I really need to stick with
1: it. Exactly. You know, and I didn't, I I was like, I can't quit now. I mean, I I probably have emails I could dig up, you know, emailing my old bosses and coworkers being like, can you, will you take me back? I'm coming back. I
0: haven't done this yet, but you saying that makes me want to say, they say this on podcasts. We'll put it in the show notes. We should put those in the show notes. I don't, I don't have show notes, so we're not going to do that. (laughs) that's what I feel like we should do. But no, I think that's important because you are not the first guest. I've had this experience as well, where you, these are a lot of times family decisions, particularly when you make them farther in your career. And that dynamic with, you know, spouse or children or whomever else who's adjusting their life as well for you to to go to law school and for it to be, oh, I don't know, maybe hard in the beginning is something that I think a lot of people have gone through.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And Again, you know, I think big picture, I, I did enjoy it enough. What I was doing didn't necessarily feel like such a mistake. It was just feeling like I had walked away from something that, you know, I don't know if I could ever get back.
0: Yeah. And was it a, was it just like a very different part of your brain as well compared to what your day-to-day was doing the other sort of work?
1: And I was not, you know, a, a very conscientious undergraduate student. So, you know, I think some of the discipline that I developed in my career, I had was able to apply in law school. So it also was probably the first time where I had really taken my studies seriously. And, you know, in that environment, it did feel intense. Wisconsin's not like the top of the, the law school totem pole, but it, it felt intense even, you know, for me at the time. And again, had I gone in straight into law school from undergrad, I think it would have turned out quite a bit different. But having that five years of in California and on a construction site really, you know, where my day started at six in the morning and went till six at night, that type of discipline, you know, really served, you know, lent me well. You know, when I was in class and studying.
0: Well, I'm interested to hear when we get to your practice, what perspective and even experience that gives you with your practice because, you know, you do have that experience of, like you said, being a construction site, not necessarily being in an air conditioned office all day and how that changes your view of being a lawyer. But we will get there. But first I want to ask, and I I don't know if you have any other reflections that you'd like to share on the law school experience, but of course I want to get to the part where you get connected with Foley. And I don't want to rush you there, but I feel like we're getting to the point where you can tell us, so how does Foley get on the radar? How do you end up working for Foley and Lardner?
1: Yeah. Being from Wisconsin, there's, I think, like two law firms that you might know about, at least for me growing up. And it was Full and Lardner as, you know, sort of the top of the top. And then I always thought highly of Corals and Brady. And I think I had heard of Corals and Brady, probably my dad might have mentioned it you know, in, around the house at one point or something. But anyway, I'd heard of Corals and Brady too. But Foley is sort of like the flagship law firm in Wisconsin. So
0: Actually, can I pause and so we can elaborate this on a little bit as a person who also grew up in Wisconsin? So growing up, my best friend's mom worked at Corals and Brady that's why I'd heard of the firm. But then for me, yes, as everybody knows, as a summer associate at Foley forever ago, you know, I rejoined the firm in this capacity. But there's a book that I believe it's titled Foley and Lardner 1842 to 1992 that was <laughs> written around the time of one of Foley's major anniversaries. The listeners may get a kick out of this, but Larry Perlman, who has been on the show, can find his episode. He actually interviewed me for the show. He sent me that book And half jokingly, he said, there was a note that was like, I expect you to have read this by the time you started the firm, you know, signed, you know, partner Foley and Lardner. The thing was, I did, I skimmed it, but I mostly read it because as someone from Wisconsin, it's really interesting to read about how the firm that goes on to be named Foley and Lardner was founded before Wisconsin was a state before Milwaukee was even a city. And the firm truly has these very, very deep roots within the state of Wisconsin. And of course, we've gone on to have 21 offices across the U.S. and you know large practices everywhere. But I do think for someone who's grown up there that the firm actually does have connections and a cachet to it that I think – someone not from the state may not be as as aware of. And also just a plug for that book about the history of Foley yeah, for yeah. anyone who wants to know. But it just, it makes sense to me that if you want to stay in Wisconsin, there's a handful of firms that are at the top of the list.
1: Absolutely. I think you're spot on. I, I had that experience and I always joke with people too. And I distinctly remember it. Foley used to advertise at Miller Park too. They had a big Foley banner out in right field. And I remember that distinctly too. I don't know if we still do, but you know, I always joke that worked for me at least. So. <laughs>
0: I know. And if we don't, you know, I hope so. We should get it back if we don't. So you're like, these are the firms that I'm most interested in. And so what was your process for getting connected to Foley?
1: I got connected at the Loyola Patent Fair, you know, which is obviously a big IP, you know, career fair, basically, where you go to a hotel and interview. you kind of pre-apply to law firms in advance and you kind of go like really, really rapid fire through a series of interviews. Foley was my last interview of the day. The earlier ones, you know, had not gone particularly well, I didn't think, and I didn't have that many, in part because, you know, I found out real, very quickly, civil engineering was not like the hottest <laughs> engineering background, you know, certainly for IP. And so, you know, and just about every interview, you know, they were asking a lot of questions about my engineering background and technical background and, and Foley did as well. The folks I interviewed with also focused on a lot of other things. And it ended up being, you know, you know how those interviews go, where it's just, it's just a really interesting. Interview.
0: Tell me about yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it
1: was it was better. So I left feeling like, wow, that I'm really glad that one at least went well, because that was the one firm on my list that I had actually heard of prior to going into the fair. So that was how I got connected with Foley. There's there's other funny stories about me getting roped into Foley. I'm not sure I should share. but We'll,
0: we'll see. We'll see. We'll choose our discretion. <laughs> also, you touched on the fact, I mean, obviously we know you're a, an IP lawyer, but you touched on interviewing with Foley at the patent fair. Was it just obvious to you that if you're going to law school, IP was what you were want to, wanting to focus on? Or how did that come about?
1: No, that was actually, you know, a real sort of inner conflict for me, because, you know, I kind of alluded to earlier, I, I kind of came into law school, actually, with more of a, a social justice type interest, you know, wanting to potentially work in a more dedicated fashion in that area. And then as I got through law school, you know, I actually had a kid towards, I think, my first, daughter, my first child, my 3L year, I think some of the more the realities of my life sunk in and kind of was like, you know, I, I don't know how realistic that is, you know, potential overseas work with IJM or anything else that I might do. And also just remembering that, like, I really enjoyed working in business before and not sure I wanted to walk away from that either. So ultimately, again, but it was a real, you know, battle. And to this day, I st- I, I'd be lying if I say it doesn't. I don't sometimes still wonder whether if I should have, you know, pursued, scratched that into harder. And how
0: did you learn about IP in general? Were you exposed to it in law school or had you been exposed to it at other points in your life?
1: No, not really. I think as an engineer, you know, I think in undergraduate, the idea of invention generally is certainly something you're familiar with. I certainly wasn't taught about intellectual property in undergraduate, but I'm I'm sure there were courses I could have taken where I would have. But I think part of it was just my undergraduate education. My grandfather was also an engineer and was always talking to me about airplanes and flap systems and things like that. So I had that in my life. You know, half the other half, part of my answer to this though, is that I, we were on the heels of the 2009, the effect of the 2009 market crash on law firms. And so the law firms were chock full of students And at the time and getting a, a job, a summer associateship was very, very competitive. I remember thinking, well, you know, I could narrow the applicant pool by focusing on patent law by virtue of having an engineering background. And so in part of mm-hmm. it was just just that reality. Sorry,
0: as you can see, I'm doing a lot of nodding. Listeners, I'm doing a lot of nodding. Also, for anybody who wants to hear even more about that Great Recession era effect, Morgan Tillman and and I on his episode talk a lot about that. But I think that makes a ton of sense because I think it's maybe hard for people, particularly those in law school right now, because yeah, we've dealt with a global pandemic and a lot of societal upheaval. But generally speaking, right now, law firms are still doing pretty well i mean we're going through another round of you know the industry salary raises as we speak so i think it's been a while since we've seen that sort of effect on the legal industry but we know it's cyclical we know it happened around 2000 as well and you know there are things i think in the early 90s i think either being in law school or starting your career around that time very much affected your view of the world because things definitely changed for a number of years, probably from what, probably about 2009 to 2013 or 14, I would say legal hiring was very much affected. So that makes sense that you'd want to lean on your your engineering skills.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So you're a summer associate at Foley. I won't go too into details because I think we can kind of put together being a summer associate, finishing up law school, joining the firm And at that point, you know, you're, I assume you're dedicated to IP, you know, you've been at Foley for a while now, you're sort of getting closer to that precipice where, you know, potential partnership is not far away, but what was your experience like starting as an IP lawyer at the firm? How did you learn to do what you do?
1: Yeah, you know, I would say I had a very sort of traditional sort of onboarding at any big law firm. I moved to the, uh, it was a move to a new city for me. We don't have family in Chicago, so, you know, it was finding a neighborhood to live in and seemed like you could either pick, you know, you picked a side of the city and that was the side of the city you lived on. And then I was warned that once you pick a side, it's hard to go to another side. So we ended up initially in the West a little and found that to be the case. Like I had friends in the North side of Chicago and it was like, we never got to see each other anymore. And I never could understand why, but, but as far as the career went, I would say the key for me was finding a couple people who developed really strong relationships with that were more senior. So a partner in a senior council in particular, who took an interest in me, not just in, you know, staffing me on on their matters, but also just, you know, took an interest in me, and, you know, kind of became friends. And that to me was was critical. There's two people that come to mind, and I don't know that I'll name them, but there are two people that come to mind that really kind of eased both the transition into the big law firm, but then also once in the big law firm helped kind of guide me into, you know, sources of work, sources of good work, and kind of showing me the ropes, so to speak and uh, sort of become a productive sort of firm citizen in that sense.
0: Well, and tell me again, or tell us again about your practice, because what you said when we started, as far as I could tell, was almost all the IP things. And often, and I think it's maybe a bit rare to have as broad a focus, but I would love if you would unpack your practice even more And that. Maybe I'll ask you some some follow-ups after that.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the unique things, and this goes to one of the partners who took an interest in me because that's her practice is extremely diverse. That was a point of emphasis for her and sort of training me was, you know, you need to get an understanding of all this in part to support her practice because she does it all. But also part of it was just a necessity. I was just a sponge trying to soak up as many opportunities as I could. In my first year, I remember in my review, like we've never had so many reviewers before you've worked on and And actually, I didn't make my hours. so It wasn't volume of hours. It was volume of like matters. You were just everywhere doing everything. And so it was, you know, getting staffed on a trademark litigation and then a patent litigation and then ultimately, you know, a copyright litigation and then doing some trademark prosecution and then a couple patent applications. I mean, it was like everything. And so I just sort of came about it and to the point now where I feel like it's, again, a sort of a point of emphasis I've made in my practice that I do understand how all these forms of IP relate to one another and the different ways you can strategically, you know, both protect IP and then enforce IP. And again, I feel like the emphasis that that partner put on it in her practice kind of mentored me to do the same thing coupled with the, just the fact that that's just happened to be where I was getting work was in all these different areas. I think sort of created what I, what I look back on as sort of a really sort of just lucky good fortune that, you know, I wasn't siloed in this massive patent litigation for four years where all I did was one part of one case and one technology and one IP area. It was quite the opposite.
0: What's funny, I have a little bit of guilt because I have not had as many IP lawyers from the firm on the podcast as I think I should have had given the size of the group at Foley. I would say at this point, you are maybe the fourth or fifth I've had a couple of patent prosecutors on, so Sonal, Agrawal, and Galen Yu, and then Mark Diliberti and Jeff Green, also on the trademark copyright advertising. But I think you're the first from the group who also has that IP litigation experience. And so just for the listeners, particularly the law students out there, I'd love to just use you to educate a little bit on what that is. And if they caught some of the other names to want to hear about those areas, they can go back and listen to those shows or email me and I'll send you an episode guide. But in terms of in terms of IP litigation, just to so people know what we're talking about, intellectual property, there's something you want to protect that has a you know a patent filed or there's a trademark. And something has happened while where we are now in dispute over it and we are in court. And you also mentioned ITC, but I would love if you could just give a little bit of a primer of like what is an IP litigator in particular, knowing that you do more than just do IP litigation.
1: Good question. I would say there's IP litigation separate from the firm's litigation department. So Foley has a litigation department, and then there's IP litigation. And then incidentally, IP litigation is within the intellectual property department, which is a different department. But, you know, I would describe it as kind of a lot of the way, just how you just described it. Ultimately, you know, a business or an individual can obtain a patent or a trademark or a copyright to protect, you know, their intellectual property. And so there's a lot of lawyers at our law firm who work with those folks to do that, to get the protection and get the right protection covering, you know, the right things. And then, like you said, you know, ultimately, if there's a dispute over that, usually some form of infringement of someone's trademark or patent or copyright, you know, that's where the IP litigators will get involved. Either on behalf of the plaintiff, suing somebody for infringement, or you know, on behalf of the defendant, you know, defending a client who's been charged with infringement. And the, the, many of the litigation aspects are identical to just conventional litigation. You know, you still have, you know, you, we still follow the Federal Rules of Evidence and the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. We're oftentimes in the same courts. It's just there's nuances to these cases that are you know very specific to these areas of law that you know a general litigator most likely just wouldn't have the experience with. Patent law in particular has, you know, local patent rules in different courts, obviously a very specific body of jurisprudence that you have to understand and Yes.
0: And terms of art within the patents, I think is something I've I've heard about over the years. And what does ITC stand for again?
1: Yeah, that's the International Trade Commission, which is another sort of venue where patent disputes can play out and just the remedies are a little different than you might get in a district court and the strategy behind why you might go there is different. But
0: and those matters are faster. I've learned that they tend to move. Yeah, more they're big then. and fast.
1: Yeah, they basically take a year, which, you know, compared to a district court patent litigation is you know, lightning speed. <laughs> yeah. Light lightning
0: speed. Well, it's funny because I've certainly gleaned things about patent litigation over the years. When I was still practicing, my first real case was actually a trade secret misappropriation case with patents at issue, and I didn't know anything about anything. I have no technical expertise. And also for the listeners to know, often why patent lawyers will have technical backgrounds like engineering or. All kinds of engineering, but also you'll see like biology and you'll see some other things is because when you're into the technical aspects of these patents, that background can be really helpful. And often they're undergraduate or, you know, PhDs or whatever, who are very up to speed on that particular area of science or technology. But for me, that was not me. You know, I was, I was pre-law undergrad. I find myself on this trade secret case with patents at issue. There's some litigators involved. There's also IP lawyers involved. But all I noticed was that many patent lawyers had color pencils in their office because they would read the patents and they would color code things. And I was like, well, clearly, I'm going to get some color pencils. <laughs> I remember being like, because I need to understand the ins and outs of this technology that we're, you know, someone's claiming that we, we stole. And actually, I didn't really need to know the ins and outs, and that pencil experiment was not didn't really work for me.
1: It was fun and colorful.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we and you know we litigated for a while. The case eventually went away because it settled. And I and for me personally, with lacking that expertise, I was like, well, that was fun. I've gotten my exposure to patents. I'm going to go back with these general litigators now, <laughs> where I belong. And the other thing I've learned because my brother-in-law is actually a, a patent lawyer at a large firm is. Of course it's all federal court so there would be times that I would tell him how I was doing something in state court as you know just general commercial litigator and he would look at me like like I had you know a third eye like he would be like <laughs> I don't under- what is a state court what are you talking about
1: Yeah you know that is true I've not been in state court I think for anything but maybe a pro bono matter you just don't go there
0: Yeah. And then it's probably jarring when you did have to go for that pro bono matter. But I really appreciate you expanding on that because there's so many things, particularly early in one's career. And if you're a law student, I have so much sympathy or empathy for you as you read all of these acronyms and practice areas. So it's just wonderful to get somebody to sort of break down what it is, you know, what it means in particular to be an IP lawyer. And what I would love to get to do with you, Spencer, is to have you reflect a bit more on your career at Foley. And then we have to transition to talking about the associates committee, because I not only have you here as an IP senior counsel at the firm, but also I have you here as chair of the firm's associates committee. But before we get there, so you talked a bit about the importance of having, you know, people who really took interest in you and in many ways, your career emulating those people. But any just other thoughts as you've made that transition to mid-level associate, senior associate, now senior counsel, as to I don't know even how your practice has changed, perhaps you know more client exposure now than in the past, or just how you've upskilled over the years.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess first of all, in terms of how my practice has changed. You know, I think again that particular partner who took an interest in me and sort of an interest in her. I think part of what worked well was you know immediately we. I think she sort of helped me become feel at least like I was really a core part of her team and that, you know, her clients were my clients and we were growing this relationship together and solving this client's problems together. And that sounds, you know, so simple. Um, but, you know, I think the danger at a big law firm, and I think it's true of any big law firm, is that you feel at times like a timekeeper and you're just billing hours and you don't feel a connection or a relationship to. A client or an issue yes and again it can feel
0: academic it can feel academic or almost hype like like this isn't real i'm just doing research exactly
1: To go back to an earlier point for me at least it's always been important that i felt like i had some meaning to my existence and this isn't just professional meaning just this is just life meaning like i want to accomplish something and make a difference and have purpose in my life and for me you know, getting connected to a client, to human beings on the other end who have, you know, real problems and, and whatnot that I was helping solve like that to me was really, really invigorating and really a catalyst to me in my career. And so I think at that point, I started thinking like, wow, I actually kind of like this. This is really fun. And that to me is that and that's like another piece to this is that I think kind of changed in my career trajectory. At some point I was like, man, I'm having a blast and I recognize now, particularly in my role as a associates' committee, that this career, for it to work for anybody, you really have to enjoy it. If you don't like this, yes, yes, it is not going to work. And you can say it
0: again. I want to start clapping, but I would. I don't want to mess <laughs> up our audio.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, when we deal with associate issues and we have them, and we deal with a lot, you know, fundamentally, so often I'm trying to decide. You know, maybe you just don't like this, and that's okay. But that's something that you know we need to talk about and work through. Because ultimately, like I said, if this is a long-term career for you, that has to be true. And if it's not, you know, we got to figure out how to make it. Through.
0: It's so fundamental. You know, you're know, you not the first person who said something like this on the show, but I don't think it can be said enough because I think particularly when you get high achievers, which most people who go to law school are, particularly if they end up in a big firm, you are so used to doing whatever you need to do to grind just to get that A, that you start your career and you're at first wired for grind. You're like, well, I just need to make it work for the next 30 to 40 years and I'll retire, dot, dot, dot. But it's so true. If you don't like what you are doing, you can make it work for a while. But the thing is, the Spencers of the world, who are having fun, <laughs> they're going to outwork you because you're actually enjoying aspects of what you do. And I just, I mean, hopefully it's all of it. But the bottom line is, is there are there at least a number of aspects of your day to day that you enjoy? So I love that you said that, and I love that you said you were having a blast. Like, wow, okay.
1: <laughs> it's true. So, but again, yeah. I say that because I think it's important and it's not, and I recognize that it's not, it hasn't always been true for me. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's important that we try to figure out, make it so that if you do enjoy it, that everybody, you know, at the law firm has the same opportunity to have a blast. That And that gets to, again, the mission of the assistance community and other things we'll get to, but.
0: Yes. Well, and you're actually saying something very similar to what Jay Rothman said when I had him on the show. It's, you know, hopefully aspects of it are enjoyable or at the very least there is an intellectual curiosity there so that it isn't the sort of drudgery of, oh, I have to answer another client question. It's, I want to help this client navigate this issue. I'm as invested in this as they are. And, you know, I don't see it as this. It's something I get to do. And it's, you know, essentially a privilege to be able and particularly in the things that you know you do and that lawyers that Foley do to be able to advise in the context that we're in. Clients don't come to us for easy softball stuff. You don't bring in outside counsel for something that's really simple. So I think that's just So, so, so true. But yes, you've raised the associates committee. I do want to lay a little bit of groundwork here just so people understand this bit of the associates committee, which is one Foley has an associates committee. Many firms do, but I would say, depending on the law firm, the extent of that committee's involvement and ability to affect change can sometimes be quite limited. But what's important for everyone to know is that I met with Spencer as a part of my own interview process with the firm. as the chair of the associates committee because it was important to have the buy-in and even you know filling my role as director of diversity and inclusion so i think that's a testament just a small testament to the involvement of you at foley as well as the committee but yes i would love for you to elaborate on what the associates committee is and what some of the mandates are of the committee
1: yeah yeah Like you said, Foley has an associates committee. I'll just start with sort of the basics of kind of what it is and I'll kind of get into what we do. So it's, you know, it's a collection of about 30 attorneys, associates and senior counsel across the firm. I say roughly 30. And it's intended to be really sort of a representative mix of associates across the firm. So it's from every office. And for our larger offices, you might have two or three sort of representatives from that particular office and has representation from every department and then sort of a broad mix of practice groups within the firm. You know, it really is sort of intended to be you know, I keep saying it, like like representative of the associate senior counsel body as a whole at the firm, both regionally, professionally, and so on. So we sort of function both at a national level, you know, all 30 of us kind of quarterly, and then often in between, you know, meeting in person quarterly, and then meeting monthly, virtually, you know, for the last year, as you can imagine, we've been virtual, and that's been possible, but you know, not ideal. And then we also operate Locally. So the the members are also responsible for doing, you know, sort of associates committee things in their own office. And that's something that I don't supervise or, you know, sort of oversee as much other than I have sort of foundational sort of expectations for what local committee members should be doing. And, you know, to my knowledge, they do all those things. And it's not the same everywhere. They all sort of take that and run with it. But that seems to work well. And then we also have subcommittees. So we have Uh, And the subcommittees, I think, operate for the most part, they meet quarterly as well, but they also have sort of their, their own ongoing projects. And it's, we have a training and professional development subcommittee, a compensation and benefits, a subcommittee, an evaluations and partnership selection subcommittee, and then a technology subcommittee. And by and large, the vast majority of like issues that we address would kind of generally fall into those buckets. We also have a recruiting sort of liaison that kind of I guess, liaises with our recruiting directors and, and, and folks. And then we also have a diversity and inclusion liaison as well, who does the same thing. So that's sort of the structure and kind of who we are. In terms of what we do, we do have a formal mission. It's long and wordy, so I, <laughs> I, won't, I won't Feel narrow. free to
0: summarize. <laughs> I'll summarize
1: it. We should redo it. But it's basically the formal mission is really to communicate issues of concern to associates and senior counsel to firm leadership, which is, you know, you mentioned one of them, Jay Rothman, Stan Jaspin, Jen Patton, our chief legal talent officer, you know, we are communicating to them continually the things that are on our, you know, collective minds, so to speak. And then the other half of it is we communicate back down. So the product of those conversations gets communicated by our committee members back down to the respective offices as well. So we're also used sort of as a channel to distribute information, messaging and whatnot. And that's the formal mission, which is absolutely true. And at the end of the day, that's, you know, kind of what I fall back on is like my minimum requirement is to communicate in that manner. I've described in a number of different contexts, I think what I would consider probably what I think the mission is, and it's a little bit more aspirational, but I think it's also equally true. You know, I think we try to identify, you know, the ways that is falling short and improve those. And so I address weaknesses, opportunities to just make Foley a better place and improve upon those things. And I think we also, you know, try to find the things that make Foley really great and have historically made Foley a special place and preserve those and make sure that we don't lose those as Foley sort of is kind of ever evolving as a big law firm. So those two components to me, I think have a little bit more color to them and a little bit of meaning to them that, and I like kind of to describe our mission that way. And then a a sort of corollary to both those things also is just that the Foley, that everybody who comes to Foley sort of has the same chance and opportunity that like the, what we describe internally as sort of the unique Foley experiences is is available to anybody, you know, any office, any practice, you know, you name it, you come into Foley and start your career here, that's what you're going to get. And so that's another priority of ours is if that's not happening, we want to know why and and try and figure it out.
0: Well, and what I think is fantastic is the role of the associates committee is, I don't know, palpable may be too strong of a word, but in my experience working in other firms, sometimes the associates committee is like focused on like the type of coffee and that's not bad. The type of coffee is important. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in my, you know, year and a half or so now at the firm, I've really gotten to see how the associates committee works with firm leadership, how firm leadership does take that input seriously. You know, of course they can't, you know, always wave some magic wand and get done what's coming from the associates committee. But there is really serious engagement and time spent listening to that feedback and considering it and from what what I've learned I know you know one thing that's a direct outgrowth of the associates committee for example is fully having an in-house executive coach which is a unique thing for a law firm to have occasionally you'll see law firms with like career coaches or outplacement coaches but we have a true executive coach and I you know I learned that that was something that came from the associates committee as well as I think in some ways the feedback to even have, you know, Jen Patton at the firm and as Foley's always been very, very focused on people and talent. But it sounds like some of that feedback from the Associates Committee over the years is what really, you know, nudged the firm towards bringing in that C-suite talent management person, you know, restructuring a department underneath her. So I think the effect of the Associates Committee really is very obvious at Foley and, you know, a bit uncommon, but I think it's also a testament to some of the broader culture at the firm in terms of feedback from everyone really being considered and it being important to gather it.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I, you know, I think it is a cultural thing. I think my experience on the committee, even prior to being chair, has been that the firm takes our input extremely seriously and values it, you know, and and when big decisions are made, you know, they'll they'll ask the committee's opinion. And like you said, sometimes we move the needle on things and then sometimes we don't. But I've never felt like you know, we didn't have a seat at the table, at least, which has been, you know, always something that I think we've appreciated, whatever the outcome is on any particular issue that either we raise or or is raised with us.
0: Well, and another testament to the Associates Committee, and just to make this about me, I suppose, for a moment. So on my second day, no, my first day at Foley, I was at the firm in the morning, and then I got on a plane, and I flew to Houston to go to what you know was probably maybe one of the last in-person gatherings of the Associates Committee before the pandemic hit. But what I attended was a meeting with, as you said, our CEO, our managing partner with Jen Patton in person with the Associates Committee, and that was on my second day with Foley. And I do remember thinking as our CEO and as Stan and as Jen carved out what I think was I don't know, two or three hours to go through various things that it wasn't something that I had seen before. So I just really think that's just like a clear example. And something else that's maybe a bit of a non sequitur, but I don't think I've highlighted on this podcast about Foley. So we have within the US over a thousand lawyers, just over a thousand. But the way the firm is structured is we're about one-to-one with associates to partners or associates and senior counsel to partners. And I think in some ways that's a, shows how and why Foley operates the way it does. Like the firm really does care about the experience of the counsel and senior counsel and you know all the lawyers who aren't partners at the firm. So having this conduit to gather that information in an intentional manner, but also we're just not a firm that has, you know, seven associates for every one partner. And I think it shows up in how we, how we operate and how we value our people.
1: Oh, I think you're right. I think there's a certain intimacy to relationships at Foley that's very genuine and, you know, embedded, I think culturally over a long period of time. And I think, you know, Jay for one and many others, I think really make a point, I think to protect that and guard against that. And it's true probably of all of our core values, but people in particular, I think you probably won't hear Jay speak to any sort of broader audience without mentioning that core value in particular. And to your point on sort of bringing you in and the executive coach and Jen Patton, you know, all of that I've sort of viewed and, you know, the Associates Committee was involved in sort of in originating and and certainly in some instances, you know, sort of promoting those ideas. That has all been sort of, I think, a product of the firm's, first of all, commitment to those core values, but then also sort of just bringing those core values even further to life sort of in this modern big law firm is how I would sort of describe it. And I've been already in the the three years some of these things have happened. It's, you know, I think you've seen some pretty significant transformation in the firm. So... To your original point, that's not...
0: Well, I was just going to say, Spencer, also, I should on this podcast also thank you for all of your time and commitment, because it does take time to be on the associates committee, let alone to chair the committee. And I know when as things arise, people will loop you in or email you directly. So in addition to your very busy practice, this is a significant amount of time that you dedicate to the committee and to the firm, which is why I would have loved to have you on the podcast a few months back. But it's just it was hard to get a hold of you because you have a lot of stuff going on. But I'm so happy that I was able to get you on. Also, we've mentioned Jay Rothman's name a number of times. I just want to say for listeners he is episode eight of the podcast so if you haven't listened to that I recommend that you go back I actually sent his episode to someone today which is why I remember the number normally I wouldn't but with that Spencer as we are winding down two final questions one is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about and then two what is your overall advice to somebody I don't know either a law student or someone early in their career on navigating a legal career
1: yeah you know I don't know if anything in particular comes to mind your first question I guess what one thing I might say and this is I, I mentioned this in, in interviews from time to time to law students because people will often ask you know, like what was your what would you tell your law student what, what advice would you give a law student considering either what to do next in law school or where to go after law school one thing that I really really appreciated was I took a class my three year called I think it was like bioethics and the law or something It had nothing to do necessarily with anything that I was interested in at the time or was planning to do after law school but I took it because at the time i had heard really good things about the professor. And what I valued about that class was, first of all, the quality of the teaching. She really was a really gifted professor. But the reason she was was because she would take, and it was a bioethics class, very controversial, difficult, what I would call sort of cutting edge issues. And, you know, just post questions to the class. And no matter which side of any particular issue you fell on. You know, she had some really, really probing and thoughtful questions for you to the point where it was some of the most fascinating discussion and respectful discussion I've been a part of. But what it trained my mind to do was to realize that, you know, to really sort of probe the boundaries of what I believed and why I believe, because, you know, she could ask me a question that turned what I thought was, you know, what I would consider near certainty on its head. And, you know, I remember getting the end of that class and like, man, I am a, a more disciplined thinker because she challenged what I thought to be true or what I thought was some type of bulletproof way of thinking about a really complicated, in that instance, legal problem. But really, it's hardly legal. It's it's so difficult because it's not legal, but it, it, mm. it is. So anyway, it was what I tell lawyers is find that professor, find your really gifted professor who can really challenge you to think in a really, really disciplined and critical manner, because that's a skill that you'll carry out of out of law school. So much of what you learn in law school, you don't have much use for when you're done, I didn't think. That type of training, I think, you know, is highly valuable. And every law school has a professor. I don't care what law school you're going to. There's professors that do Find
0: them. Right, go find that person.
1: <laughs> take that class. I mean, seriously. For me, it was that class with that professor, but that's out there for everybody. Otherwise, I think the tendency is to take a class that's like, training you to do something very specific like for me i took a patent law class because i wanted to go to patent law glad i took that class but that wasn't because necessarily that professor was going to really kind of transform my my sort of way of thinking about things so anyway
0: i think that is excellent advice and my final final question if someone has questions for you or wants to reach out can they feel free to find you on foley's website and send you an email
1: yeah absolutely absolutely rmontai m-o-n-t-e-i at foley.com
0: All right. Thank you so much, Spencer. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Spencer Monti. I'm here with a quick update on Spencer, which is that as of February 1st, 2023, Spencer joined the partnership of Foley and Lardner. Congratulations, Spencer. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.